Well, this morning, as always, it's a joy to turn back to the word of God, this treasure that he's given to us for our good, for our salvation, and for our knowledge of him. Today, we're back in Psalm 139. Today, part three of that. And so we'll pick up in verse 13 there, Psalm 139. As you turn there, I was thinking this week on the wonder of the human body, the complexity of the organs and systems that are constantly at work within us, each one of them really is impossible to fully comprehend. And we have to confess that while we are able to observe and, and document what processes take place within our physical bodies, we have no viable human explanation as to how or why it works that way continually. It's obviously far too complex for a theory like evolution to have any validity. We know it couldn't come from a big bang because we've seen several little bangs all over the world and we know they only produce chaos and destruction, not com complex order and beauty and harmony. And to illustrate just how complex our bodies are, we need to do nothing more than a simple Google search as I did this week and you come up with things like this. The human eye is made up of more than two million working parts. Two million working parts in each one of your eyes. It's estimated that the eye can differentiate up to 10 million different colors. If we could take all the blood vessels from one adult human body and lay them end to end, they would stretch for approximately 60,000 miles, which for a point of reference, would circle the globe at the point of the equator two and a half times. The human heart beats 1,000 times each day and pumps about 1.5 gallons of blood every minute. That means each day your heart pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood. And if we do the math, a heart that beats roughly 100,000 times a day will beat approximately 35 million times in a given year. And over the course of an average lifespan, the human heart will beat some 2.5 billion times. And those are just a few fun facts for kids that you can find on Google. Some of you are in the medical profession and you know that the complexities of the human body go far beyond such facts as these and yet these in and of themselves are far and more than we need to blow our minds when we think about the complexities of the body. And of course as believers we don't wonder where the body comes from or why and how it operates because we know that God has made it so. God has created us, we exist because he made us and because he continues to sustain us. And the question we wanna look at this morning is, how does the fact that God created us as individuals connect to his personal omniscience and om omnipresence as we've seen already in Psalm 139? And that's the question we'll answer together as we study verses 13 to 18. If you'll look there with me, Back to Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13, David writes, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret 
and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. As we look at this Psalm again this morning, we're still unpacking this great theme that we are to delight in the perfections of our God and continually invite his personal examination. This Psalm of David, of course, is motivated by his awe and wonder at who God is. We'll see that again this morning in clear detail. It is David's personal observations of the attributes of God as they apply to him personally. And we are then invited into that process as we consider personally the attributes of God and how they relate to us as individuals. This Psalm breaks down into four components. We're in component number three. The first three components, as we've said, all deal with a different attribute or perfection of God and his nature. And then finally, the fourth component that we'll study next time will be David's detailed personal response to what we have seen. In the first component, we saw God's personal omniscience, his personal omniscience. He knows you intimately. And that opening statement that we read together, Lord, you have searched me and know me. That is really setting the framework, the bookends for this Psalm. You have searched me and known me. This is really what's captured the author's attention as he thinks about the perfections of God, the fact that God knows him at a deeper level than his mind can conceive. It brought him to a second component that we looked at last time, personal omnipresence. Not only is God all-knowing when it comes to us and all things, but he is omnipresent. He accompanies you unceasingly. He's not only with you in part everywhere you go, but the whole of God, all of God's being is everywhere in every place at all times, which means he sees us all day long, nose to nose, face to face. You're never outside of the presence of God. And so at this point, the author goes even deeper as he comes out of this reflection on the omnipresence of God, and he turns to a third component that we'll call personal omnificence. Personal omnificence, he created you intricately. This word omnificence may not be as familiar to you as the others. This essentially is a theological term that refers to the fact that God has perfect and infinite creative power. Not just that God has created all things, that is true, but when we talk of God as omnificent, what we're saying is he has unlimited created power. He can create anything that his mind can conceive and because his mind is unlimited, his ability to create is unlimited. This attribute of God is under the larger umbrella of God's omnipotence. Because God is all powerful, of course, that means he is all creative. And it's this 
attribute of God as creator that captivates the attention of David now. And this might actually seem like a diversion from his line of thinking. It may not immediately be clear how God's creative power connects to his omniscience and his omnipresence. But I think by the time we're done, you will see it connects perfectly. The connection point really comes from the final place we ended last time in verses 11 and 12. If you look at Psalm 139, 11, he says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. So we finished last time talking about God's omnipresence in the sense that there's no dark place or dark circumstance that you can enter into in life that affects God's ability to see you and be with you. He is not limited in the ways that we are by physical darkness, and he's not limited in the ways that we are by circumstantial darkness when we can't see what's happening in our lives. And so that leads the author to think of a very specific dark place that we have all been at the early point of our lives, the mother's womb. He's gonna think back to the first dark place where God met all of us in the intimate place of our mother's womb. And this makes perfect sense because if you think about it, there's never been a time in your life in which you were in a more vulnerable state than when you were in your mother's womb. You could do nothing, you knew nothing, surrounded by the darkness and the secrecy of your mother's womb. And yet even there, God was with us. He knew us and he saw us. He begins with this opening statement which describes the fact that he created us intricately. Look back at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Again, this is an example of David using Hebrew poetry, two different ways of saying the same thing, but they harmonize together. That's what we have here. And it's important that we understand again that David is being literal here. Though he's using Hebrew poetry, he's not being poetic in the sense of the meaning. It's very clear that he means literally God formed us in the womb. It's, it's a fact. It is true that you can pick up a scientific book and read about the intricate details of the formation of a human being in the womb. We've been able to observe that now and we can describe the process day by day, almost hour by hour from conception all the way to birth. And yet again, we have to admit that while we have documented detailed descriptions of how the whole process works, medicine is at a loss to tell us why does it keep happening this way? Every time, over and over again, the same sequence of events happen as each human being comes into existence. 
But David makes it clear that the answer is not merely scientific, it is theological. Our development in the womb is owed to our creator. Understand it's not just that God created the world and set it in motion and now it just keeps going the way he he put it in motion. That is deism, that's a false understanding of God as if God wound the creation up like a clock and then let it go and now it just keeps ticking on its own. No, the Bible teaches that God created all things and continues to sustain all things. And so the reason that the earth turns and your heart beats and the process in the womb happens over and over again the same way is because God is causing it to do that. So God did not just create mankind when he made Adam and Eve and then we took over from there. No, he continues to create each individual human being to the point that he does not say here, you were with me while I was forming in the womb. He says, you formed me. God, you formed me in my mother's womb. Specifically, he points first to the internal organs, organs, literally the the word is kidney. You form my kidneys or my, that's a a way of saying in Hebrew, my inward parts, the inside of me. You were forming those things. If you think about it, those are the the hidden things within the hidden womb. So you're already hidden in the womb. The internal organs are the things not seen. And so God was even there on the inside of you, forming you to be exactly what he intended for you to be. It was personal, it was intricate. And we see that meticulous attention to detail, even in the change in the verbs he uses here in these first two phrases. First he says, you formed me. And then in the second half of the phrase, he says, you wove me or knit me in my mother's womb. When you weave something or knit something, at least I understand, not from personal experience, but that's a, that's a pretty intricate process, right? You're, you are intricately involved with each detail being woven together. That's the idea here. God was caring about the smallest details of the formation of our bodies down to the inner recesses of our physical form. And so even though we today have the technological ability to look inside the womb for a moment and to see that little baby there kicking and moving. Still, even with modern technology, the vast majority of the time, that baby is there in the womb unseen. And only when we go to a doctor's appointment do we have a chance to peek behind the veil. But there it is in that secret place. You wove me in my mother's womb. God is there all the time. And so here we have the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God colliding together inside the womb. He's there with us in the womb and yet he knows us to the deepest recesses of who we are as a human being down to our internal parts. Now you see how this new section ties in beautifully with the two that we've already studied. Really it's a collision of the first two attributes of God. If God wove you together in the womb, there's nothing he doesn't know about you. And if God was fully present and active in your life in the privacy of the womb, then there is no other place that you could possibly go to escape his presence. 
And this leads David to the only logical conclusion, which is awe, wonder, and worship. This section of the psalm is gonna be an overflow of worship from David as he again is overcome with the bigness of God and all that God has done. And he's gonna frame this worship of God around two specific considerations. Two considerations of God's creation of him as an individual. We'll break this down into these two parts. Consideration number one, his wonderful works his wonderful works, the physical things that God has done to create David. He begins with this overflow of thanksgiving in verse 14, having now thought about what he said in verse 13, he says, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an overflow of worship. His heart is bursting forth as he thinks about how God has pieced him together and woven him together intricately in his mother's womb. It's a good reminder, by the way, that our contemplation of God should always lead to worship, should always lead to an overflow of expressing gratitude and worship as our minds hit the, the breaking point in our considerations of him. It's an occasion for utmost gratitude and praise. And the first response here is the fact that when David thinks about just how intricately God has woven him together, it makes him fearful in the sense of reverence towards God, a shaking, a trembling. It's really terrifying to think of how powerful God really is down to the level of creating us in the womb. That's why he says, I am fearfully made. That idea of fearful, it's a, it's a reverence, a holy awe, a trembling at the holiness and the magnitude of God. When we think about the intricacies of our bodies, it should cause us to be fearful before this holy God. You know, one of the reasons that fallen man is so bent on denying that God is our creator is because if we are truly created by God, the implications about God and how powerful and how big he must be to do that is truly terrifying. It's much more comfortable to try and explain away the creation of God than to deal with the fact of what it means about God if he is indeed our creator. Because when you truly consider the complexities of what God has made, that then draws your minds to the complexities of God himself. It leads us to say, who is this God that, that so supersedes our imaginations? What is he like to be able to do these things? It's mind boggling, it's, it's rightly terrifying in the theological sense of a, a trembling before a holy God. And yet at the same time, David balances it because it's not only fearful, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to think of what God has done. He is wonderful in what he has done. This is still thinking of the creation of God with sheer amazement, but now it draws David to joy and to wonder at his God. It's wonderful, it's awe-inspiring, it's, it's beautiful what God has done. John Calvin says here, the true and proper view to take of the works of God is that which ends in wonder. We should wonder at our God when we think of his works. 
And specifically, we know now as we read further in verse 14 that it's the works of God that have captivated David here in this first consideration because he says, wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. You know, when we consider the works of God, it should cause us to wonder at the glory of God deep into the inner recesses of who we are. Notice he says, my soul knows it well. The deepest parts of me know that this is true and I'm overwhelmed at this meditation. It's shaken me to the core, David says. And this this wonder and this amazement and fear and awe now leads David to recount specific examples of the work of God in his life as it deals with creation. What has God done for David? And, and, and we are, it's right and good for us to insert ourselves here because this is equally true of us. The same things he's done in the creation of David, he's done in the creation of you and of me. So think of yourself here as we think of the personal creation of God. The first example that David gives in this consideration of God's works is he created my form. He created my form. Look back at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. That word for frame there is literally the, the word for bones. This is the, the skeletal structure, the form of the human body. He began with the internal organs and now he goes to even just the frame of how my body is made up, its shape. And all of this again was done in the secrecy of the womb. He uses a, a, a poetic picturesque description of the womb here when he says, I was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. He's not at all intending to teach some strange idea that our bodies are formed outside of our mother in some secret hidden place in the earth and then brought and implanted there. That's not what he means. He's using a word picture for the womb itself. The womb is the place that is this secret place, this deep place that is outside of human activity and human sight. Only God sees it there. The point is that God was there in that secret place, designing, weaving, creating each one of us individually down to the form of our bodies. Which leads us to the implication that you are exactly as God designed you to be. Every single one of us has given into the temptation to be critical of the way that God has made us. If I were to ask you to share with us your least favorite feature of your physical body, I'm sure you would have one you could tell us right away, maybe a few. But what David says here is that God made you that way on purpose with great precision and care. He intended for you to be exactly as you are because it brings glory to him. And he made us with this vast variety of, of facial features and skin tones and hair textures and colors and variations in stature to display the grandeur of his glorious power to create anything his perfect mind conceives. You know, when you think about it, when you go into a, a really nice grocery store, like a high-end grocery store, one where you wanna get maybe something very special and you, you go down an aisle like the cheese aisle, 
which is one of my favorite aisles. And you see the, this magnificent display of Jesus. Jesus, you had no idea existed on the planet. It's overwhelming as you look. I wanna try that cheese and that cheese and I didn't even know they made cheese that looked like that. Why is it that when we see variety in other things, we give God glory and see the beauty of that variety? But when it comes to ourselves, we're so tempted to conformity. Whatever, whatever icon is considered beautiful, we take our physical body and we compare it to that form and say, I'm not like that in these ways and therefore I'm unlovely and I'm unbeautiful, I'm not beautiful. Listen, God says I made you exactly as I wanted you to be because look at what I can do. Look at the variety of the noses on your faces and the, the hair color and, and the stature. I did it all to show my glory. So don't allow yourself to criticize the handiwork of God when you look in the mirror. This is not to pat ourselves on the back and create some high view of ourselves and self-esteem. When we look in the mirror, it ought to turn our minds to God as it does to David and to say, God, you are glorious. Look at what you've made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. Example number two, not only does he know my form, he knew me from conception. He knew me from conception. He goes on to say here in verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Amazingly, God's intimate knowledge of you and personal presence with you started before you even began to take form. So here we take a step backwards. Before we were looking at the, our form, our skeletal structure, structure, he says, but it goes back even further than that. You knew me from conception, before I had form, before I had bones and internal organs. When I was just an embryo, at the very moment of my conception in the womb, you knew me there. You were with me. God has known you personally through and through from the first second of your existence. He was there with you in the womb as an embryo. Uh, this should be th thrilling, it's, it's mind blowing. It causes us to respond as David did with fear and trembling and thanksgiving and worship. But as you can see, it's also a clear indictment on the sinful murder of the unborn. We can't talk about this wonderful verse without acknowledging that man's depravity has now spiraled out of control to the point that we have mastered the process of invading the secret privacy of the womb to take advantage of human beings at their most vulnerable point in life to murder them. This is a passage that unmasks the practice of abortion for what it really is, it is nothing more than professionalized murder. And its sophisticated approach to murder doesn't make it more palatable, it actually makes it more cruel, more cold and malicious. After studying this passage, there's no one who can legitimately say that it is not a sin to kill an unborn child. It's the murder of a human being made in the image of God. God is at work in that womb, weaving that baby together. The handiwork of God, it's sinful to destroy it. Obviously we can't study a passage like this and not mention that truth 
But we also have to be careful not to miss the key point that the author is making here because he intends for this to be an encouragement to the Christian to propel the Christian to worship by meditating on the fact that God has been with you from the very first moment. From the moment of your conception, God was there with you in the womb and he knew you through and through. But now he goes even further back in time. He started with your form in the womb, then he went to your conception in the womb. But as his mind thinks on God even further, he says, you know what? God's knowledge of me even preceded that. And this is example number three, he ordained my days. He ordained my days. Looking back at verse 16, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. As David's thoughts of God go deeper and deeper and deeper, he realizes, you know what? God's activity in my life didn't start at conception. It goes all the way back into eternity past. This is a profound phrase. Honestly, we could do an entire series on this idea of God ordaining our days. But I do wanna give us an overview of what this means and the significance of what David has just said. Because what David is expressing here is not simply that God ordained the number of our days, that is true, but the content of each of our days, all of it. Every second of every day of your life, as well as the timing of the end of your life, all of that has been ordained by a sovereign God. There's several things here specifically that we have to notice about the way David says this. First of all, notice the mention of the fact that these days were written in God's book, literally scroll in the Hebrew text. They were written in your scroll. What's the, what's the idea there? It's, it's a word picture to give us the, the idea of finality, of certainty. The idea is that God has written the number and the content of our days and they're no longer in process. It's not as if God is responding to the events of your life in real time and writing your story reactively in response to what's happening to you. Instead, God has so ordained your days and my days that it's as if he physically wrote them down in a scroll before we were born and the ink was dry on the page before you entered humanity. And we see this clearly in what he says next because he says the timing of this took place when as yet there was not one of them. That is before my days began, you ordained them. So here we have the timing of this ordination at a minimum here. It had to have happened prior to our conception because he says our days begin at conception because he says I was there with you uh, when you were unformed in your unformed substance. But we understand theologically from other passages, it goes back even before, just before you were born into eternity past. We see it specifically in relation to salvation in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 4. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So obviously God knew you before he even made the world at all. And that's what we call eternity past. It's referencing the fact that God has always been and he's always known as long as he's been, therefore he knew in eternity past. So what does all this mean for us? This idea of the ordination of our days before they began. What it means is that nothing in your life, nothing is the result of chance. Nothing in your life is random. And nothing about your life, therefore, is without purpose. In the context of the difficulties that David must be facing as he writes this psalm, he's using this meditation on God's ordination of his days as a source of personal comfort, as a source of personal strength. It comforts his heart to think on the fact that whatever's happening to him is not outside of God's control or God's ordaining plan, his decree. It means that the dark cloud that David is walking into now is just as clearly ordained by God as that time in his mother's womb. Just as intricately involved as God was there in the womb, weaving together his his inward parts, so intricately is God weaving together or has woven together his days and the content of those days. And for David, that's a reason for rejoicing It's a reason for his heart to be filled with joy and trust in God. You know, the reason that God's sovereignty over our lives is not terrifying is because we know that God is good and merciful and gracious. He's just and he's kind. We know that God is holy and perfect in every aspect of his being. We know that God is is all-knowing and has all power. Therefore, nothing is outside of his abilities And we know that his character creates guardrails on what he will and will not do. He will not act in a way that's not consistent with who he is. And so David is comforted and we should be comforted because it's this perfect, holy and good God who has ordained your days, all of them. It means that even our darkest moments in life, when temptation and trial are knocking at the door and threatening seemingly to destroy us, even then God is planning to use that pain and that confusion and that difficulty for spiritual good in our lives and for his glory in a way that that surpasses our wildest imaginations. And if you think about it, the reason that we struggle with the idea of God ordaining our days is because we fear that it somehow casts doubt on the goodness of God. This is the primary argument that people will make. They'll say, you know, that I can see that in that passage, but it can't mean that because that would somehow mean God is not good. And I know God is good, So because I see an apparent contradiction, even though there's not one in the scripture, I simply can't believe that God has ordained the content of my days. The reason is because not all of our days are rosy and fun. It's easy to think about God ordaining our time in the womb, 
a happy place in which we're being formed, but what about those dark days? What about those times in life when we're sinned against and treated truly unjustly by any definition? What about those times in life when from a human perspective, everything goes wrong and circumstances are tragic and heartbreaking by any definition? If God ordains these things, does it not cast a shadow on the character of God? The answer is absolutely not. And the only reason that we're even tempted to think that it might cast a shadow on his goodness is because of our finite, limited understanding. Let me see if I can illustrate this for us. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're, you are from a very small, isolated tribe in, in the mountains of some remote island that's still been undiscovered and has never been modernized by modern civilization. And so your understanding then of life as a whole and of things like medicine and proper medical procedure are bound up and shaped by the medical knowledge available on that isolated island. Now imagine that you are somehow transported immediately to the United States and as you open your eyes, you are in what is unbeknownst to you, an operating room and you are immediately beholding open heart surgery. Imagine how shocked and terrified you would be at the scene before you. Imagine trying to make sense of this man in strange clothes sawing open the chest of another person. I mean, just think about that. Put yourself in the operating. Some of us get squeamish about that even though we know what's happening. Think about if you had no idea of such a medical practice and there you are watching a man's chest be cut open before your eyes. What would you be tempted to think about that surgeon performing that operation? You would, because of your lack of understanding of the situation, assume that you are staring at a sadistic, torturous murderer of the highest degree. Your reaction would be either to run out of the room in fear or to attack the surgeon in an attempt to save the patient, right? And yet you'd be entirely wrong in your assessment of the situation, of the surgeon, and of his intentions. While it is true, the surgeon does do his work by literally cutting open the chest of that patient. He does so for a higher purpose of saving the man's life, not to destroy the man. The surgeon is cutting this man open to do him good. And the patient willingly subjects himself to this procedure and even pays the surgeon to do it. Please, sir, cut open my chest because I understand if you don't, I will die. So rather than doing him harm, the surgeon is masterfully cutting this man open with great precision and great care so as to do him ultimate good. Listen, when God surrounds us with dark and painful circumstances, our flesh will tempt us to question either his sovereignty or his goodness. Typically in our theological circles, we're tempted to question God's goodness more than his sovereignty because we're convinced he's in control of all things. So when something bad happens, our flesh is going to attempt to tempt us to say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why have you been less than good to me? 
And in those moments, we must force our minds to the truth of scripture and declare with David that God ordains my days and this is a cause for utmost joy. And the reason that I cannot in this moment see the eternal good that God is producing is because of my limited finite vision and knowledge. I cannot see the context behind what God is doing. Therefore, I will choose, I will intentionally choose not to lean on my own understanding of my circumstance, but to lean on the character of my God. Christian, let me ask you, if God ordains your days, then what is there left to fear in life and death? If we have this one that we've just described as the one ordaining our days, there's nothing left to do but trust. Joseph understood this, you remember when Joseph's brothers approach him begging for his mercy and his forgiveness at the, after his father's passed away, Joseph responds with these famous words in Genesis 50, 20, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Notice he doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it, guys. It really didn't hurt all that bad anyway. That's not what he says. He doesn't minimize their sin. He doesn't minimize the evil. But in and through their sinful actions, he now saw that there was the hand of God in allowing his brothers to sin against him in this way to use that as a tool to do good. The sinful sword of Joseph's brothers became the surgeon's scalpel in the hand of his God. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. But in thinking about the works of his God, David now transitions to a second consideration of God's thoughts, his precious thoughts. Look back at the passage here, verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Now at first glance, this might seem like we've really gone off the reservation. Everything really tied together until we get to this point. And now we turn to the thoughts of God and it may seem that, that David's moved on to a new topic and a new idea. But actually there is a great connection here because the creative works of God originate in the creative mind of God. We understand even as human beings, when we make something, we can only make what our minds can conceive. Our minds conceive of something and then we put our hands to work to try to make it become a reality. And so the mind of God and the works of God are intricately connected. What he has done reveals something about how he thinks. And on a human level, this is why often when we uh, talk about a person who has reached the elite levels of some activity in our society, some profession or skill, we often refer to them as a genius. That guy's a genius. A great businessman, a great artist, the world's most elite athletes often get this title of genius. And the truth is, if you'll do some research, oftentimes those who reach the highest uh, status in these areas have often a higher IQ than what's average. They, they often are very, very bright 
And that's why they're able to do some things that the rest of us say, man, I don't even know how they thought of that. You know, you watch Shark Tank and you're like, man, why didn't I think of that? But isn't that interesting? That's our thought. We see some neat gadget or some neat tool and we say, why didn't I think of that? Because what is made points to the intellect, the mind of that person. The same thing is true of God. And so it's not unconnected, it's very well connected as David now goes to say, if you made me this way and you did all this, what does that mean about who you are and the mind of God, the thoughts of God? And he's gonna describe the thoughts of God here with two particular words that again seem to be almost the opposites of one another when in fact they, they go hand in hand and harmonize to show us just the grandeur of God's thoughts. He says here in verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. And then he says, how vast is the sum of them. Now these two words actually, the Hebrew terms here uh, would, would appear to be opposites on the surface. The word for precious is actually the word for rare. He says, how rare are your thoughts? So when he says precious, he means you know, the financial principle, we understand that value is assigned to things even on earth because they're scarce. The reason the diamond's more expensive than a, than a pebble is because you can get a pebble on the side of the street. You can't pick up a diamond on the side of the street. So the, the scarcity, the fact that that diamond is rare is what makes it valuable. We all want one and there are fewer of them than there are those of us who have money to buy them. That's what makes them valuable. That's the idea here. God, your thoughts are rare. They're scarce. The idea is they're unlike any of our thoughts. They're in a unique category. They're different. We've got pebbles for thoughts and you have diamonds for thoughts. They're precious. They're actually of the rarest quality, transcendent thoughts. But not only are they rare, so that's an idea that they're scarce, But also he says here, they're vast. How vast is the sum of them? So vast, he says, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. God has more thoughts than there are grains of sand on the the planet. And so think about these two descriptions. On the one hand, God has these rare thoughts, thoughts that are unlike any other. And yet on the other hand, he has a treasury of them. Every single one of God's thoughts are more valuable than the sum total of our thoughts, and yet he has a treasury of these rare, precious thoughts. This is the idea, this is, this is uh, the height of value. It's like saying, I am the owner of the rarest, most unique and valuable diamond on the planet. It is truly unique from any other diamond that you can buy. But not only that, I've got a whole treasure chest full of them, each one of them more rare than any diamond available on the market to you today. That's God's thoughts. They are uniquely rare. Have you ever thought about God's thoughts? It really is a mind-bending assignment. Try it this week, try thinking about God's thoughts. Now that we understand this idea of God weaving us together in the womb and this idea of his thoughts that were first then created, his thoughts were being created in real time, let's think about this for comparison. 
NASA's space shuttle, which was in its day the height of ingenuity and technology, it was a, a space shuttle that represented the work of of probably hundreds of engineers coming together, maybe, maybe thousands, working over a long period of time, collaborating together, sharing their knowledge, trying to come up with this vehicle that would take us to outer space, even to the moon. The space shuttle, the whole shuttle, is estimated to have had 2.5 million movable parts that made up that shuttle. Now consider what I told you at the beginning of the message, that just one of your eyes is estimated to have two million moving parts. Just one of them. Think of the eyes that are represented in this room, in this state, in this country, in this world. The eyes that are now being developed in wombs of women all over the world. Just one eyeball two million moving parts. That's the vastness of the mind of God. And we've not even talked about cells and molecules and rivers and oceans and plants and animals and stars and planets and heaven and hell and the soul. All things that God has made reveal the magnitude of the thoughts of God. It's incredible. Psalm 40 verse five says, many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There's none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. In fact, to think on God's thoughts is mentally exhausting. And I think that's actually the, the idea here that the author comes to as he closes up this section because he ends by saying, when I awake, I'm still with you. Now he might simply be saying, every time I wake up, you're there. That's true. But in context, he seems to be saying more than that. As we tie it into this meditation on the thoughts of God, it's almost as if the David is up late meditating on God's thoughts and he comes to a point of sheer exhaustion to where he falls asleep meditating on these things only to wake up and find that God never slept and he's still there waiting for him to pick up his attempts at thinking on the magnitude of God. Here's the point of this meditation on God's thoughts. It should bring us to understand that it is the height of arrogance and foolishness to distrust a God with a mind like this. Who would you rather have ordained your days, Christian? than a God with an infinite mind paired with an infinitely perfect character. Who else would you have do it? Is it not utterly foolish to challenge the mind of God by presenting him with arguments crafted by our finite understanding as to why he should have arranged our lives differently? You know, some people say, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions for God. You know, Job had some questions for God. And God answered them by saying, who are you? Were you there when I made the world? Can you explain to me why the deer continues to have babies in the way that it does every spring? Can you tell me why the, the oceans come this far and they don't go any further? Can you tell me where the snow comes from or the wind? Who are you? 
And God doesn't say that to Job to, to belittle Job in, in the sense of being mean-spirited, but to remind Job of who he is talking to. Who are we to bring our finite, petty minds against a holy, infinite God? Listen, there are so many things in our lives that don't make sense to us. How could they? How could we make sense of them with such puny, infinite, or limited minds when an infinite God has made all things? God says, I'm not gonna tell you always what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I'm going to tell you who I am and ask you to trust me. That's the Christian response. Trust this holy God. And as you do that, you will know that you're doing it because you'll respond like David responds. When David says, you've ordained my days, he sees this as awe and worshipful and wonder as he thinks on the goodness of his God. And so as we close, let me call us to respond in three particular ways. Number one, meditate on God's personal creation of you. Meditate on God's personal creation of you. Spend some time thinking this week about the fact that every part of you, including your physical body and the content and length of your days were created by God. Let me ask, in, in what ways have you thought wrongly about your life in light of what we studied? In what ways should you be encouraged by the fact that God made you purposefully and with great care and intentionality? Spend some time thinking about all the things that have to go exactly right in your body just for you to live for a minute, let alone a day, let alone a year, let alone a lifetime and meditate on the fact that all of that happens moment by moment because a, a good God sustains you and causes it to happen. And when you are done meditating on these things, respond as David does in wonder and awe. Which brings us to a second response. Worship God in light of his personal work. Worship God. After you've thought on these things, give him thanks, pour out your heart. Don't just end with those meditations in your mind, but let them come out of your mouth in expressing yourself to God and in song and in prayer and in thanksgiving. Speak of him to others, give him the worship that he's due. And then thirdly and finally, trust God in light of his transcendent thoughts. Let the magnitude of God's thoughts overwhelm you. Let the fact that his thoughts are higher than your thoughts, both in value and in number, produce humility in you. And if you're tempted to be angry or bitter at God over your circumstances, confess that to God as the sin that it is and ask for his help. He knows that we struggle in our limitations. He knows that we are weak. He strengthens us to stand and to trust him. Choose to trust him, not because you understand what he's doing, but because you understand who he is. And one day you'll be able to say with Joseph, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And let me just close by saying, if you're here this morning, and as we've talked about this God and how wonderful he is and as your creator, and, and you honestly have to say, you've lived your life rejecting him as God over you, Maybe you've spent your life rejecting the fact that he has made you. Understand the Bible says all of us are sinners 
who deserve God's wrath for our sin, that our sin separates us from a holy God, but he's made a way for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life we failed to live. He gave that life as a sacrifice to God on the cross, paying the penalty for the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. The Bible says, if you will humble yourself today, submitting yourself to God as who he says he is, putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done for you for salvation, you'll be saved, forgiven of your sin, made right with God. And then you'll have the capacity to rejoice in the things that we've said today. But don't waste another day in rebellion against a good and gracious God such as this. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess our weakness in these things. These are things most of us, hopefully all of us know to be true. And yet when we are tested with trial and difficulty, we confess It's hard to think this way at times. We do wonder at times what exactly you're doing and you don't chastise us for wondering those things, but you do call us to trust you. God, strengthen us to do what you ask by your sustaining grace. Help us, God, not to question your character or your ability based on the things in our lives, but to trust that you will be the God you've always been because you never change. God, help us to grow in these things even today. Thank you that you care for us so intimately as to to ordain our days and eternity past, to knit us together in the womb and to carry us through moment by moment in this life until you bring us to be at home with you. We give you praise for these things and we ask it in the name of Christ, amen.